Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this, and that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books, or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Welcome to this week's episode of Reimagining Love. I have been wanting to do an episode about desire differences for a very long time, and I have the most perfect guests to tackle this topic today. You know, desire differences are the number one problem that couples bring to sex therapy. And that's because the chances that partners are going to want the same sexual experiences at the same frequency throughout their relationship are slim to none. But it's so easy for the space between your libido and your partner's libido to become full of fear, judgment, shame, and silence. So today, we're going to be exploring what causes desire differences and how to cope. My guests are Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy and Dr. Jennifer Venzel who are co-authors of the fantastic new book, Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships. Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy is a licensed psychologist and an ASECT certified sex therapist. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology and completed her postdoctoral training at the University of Minnesota's Institute for Sexual and Gender Health. She specializes in sexual health and relationships and owns her own private practice in Minnesota. Dr. Jennifer Venzel is an assistant professor, a board-certified clinical health psychologist, and an ASECT-certified sex therapist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is duly appointed in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology, as well as the Division of General Internal Medicine, and her research focuses on sexual health and health disparities in marginalized sexual and gender communities. She also sits on the editorial boards 
of the International Journal of Sexual Health and Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity. I'm really excited for you to benefit from Dr. Fogel Mercy and Dr. Vensel's wisdom and practical guidance, which is going to help you approach desire differences with more curiosity, more compassion, and with a deeper sense of collaboration. You will also hear us respond to a question from a listener who's struggling to feel attracted to her new partner who otherwise looks great on paper. I hope you enjoy. Jennifer and Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. I'm so excited to speak with both of you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be here with you, Alexandra. Oh, good. We've got a lot to discuss in terms of libido differences in relationships, which is just such an important topic and one that we really haven't gotten into nearly enough on Reimagining Love. But before we do that, I would like to ask you both to speak a little bit to the relational self-awareness question. Are you ready for the question? Ready. Go for it. Okay. So I would love for you each to speak to a Growing Edge that you're working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately. There was, I think, a former guest on your show who was talking about putting their phone down more when they're with their partner. And this is something that I'm constantly working on, putting my phone down and giving eye contact and that more undivided attention. It's so easy to try to like multitask. And so that would be specifically with my partner is just like really putting the phone down, even putting the screen on its side or facing it away and just really giving that sort of undivided attention because I think it's challenging with, you know, my phone feels like an appendage at this point. (laughs) So I know that that sort of interferes, even if he'll tell me, you know, it's fine. I don't need your full attention. I think there is some impact to constantly sort of having that facing me and sort of creating sometimes a visual barrier between, you know, my partner and me. And so really working on trying to put it down, even if it's just for a momentary check-in or question. Yes. I really like that even though your partner is saying it's okay, you know, I don't mind having your attention divided. You're saying that actually you want this practice for yourself. Why? What are you noticing that it's shifting inside of you as you become more mindful about putting it down? You know, I think, and we're good. He will tell me, you know, yes, I want your undivided attention right now. But I also will hear sometimes, you know, those statements of like, you know, you're always on social media or you're always on your phone or you're, you know. And so I think maybe even in a moment where it feels like, oh, it's not a big deal, there's a theme and a trend that I'm noticing that I don't like about my behavior, which is that there's a lot of time and attention going into screen time and not as much sort of face-to-face undivided. And so I I value that and I want that to be something that I live more and more by. Yep. Such a good reminder for all of us. And like you said, it really is like an appendage. We don't tend to have our phones very far out of our reach these days. Yes, your partner benefits from it, but really it's you're saying something about how you want to be and what you know creates more presence and more calm inside of you. Right. Yeah. Right. It's how I want to show up. Yes. Right. Jennifer, how about for you? Yeah. Mine is related to sort of a unique logistical issue in my relationship lately. So many folks who know me know that my partner, because of his job, we were doing long distance for the last year. And so we're navigating that for the year And he has recently, we've moved back in together after being away for the year. And so we're now in this place of, yeah, we were kind of living the single but not single life for a year, making sure we had points of connection, of course, um, seeing each other when we could, but over the phone and through technology with long distance. But now, you know, recreating date nights, making sure we have quality time in person together, something that it takes a little bit of shifting back into after 12 months, we have found. Uh Uh-huh. I think it's important that you're bringing that up because when long distance, I think that we underestimate how difficult and choppy that transition from long distance back to living together can be because it's, it's something that you both have wanted, right? It's one of those changes that is quote unquote, a good change. And it's one where there can be some bumpiness as well. 
Yeah, it's really easy to get into your own routine when you're living alone for a while after not having lived alone for a really long time. And so transitioning back into that, oh, I'm sharing space again with somebody. I can't just do whatever the heck I want, play music when I want, be loud when I want, right? And also making sure that we have quality points of connected time. We're both super, super busy with our work and our careers. And so we try to be super intentional about creating that time and space together. And now we have more opportunity to do that. Yeah. While still valuing and needing alone time? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially for me, a very classic introvert. Are you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you both so much. Okay. So you have this book that I adore. It's been out in the world for just a little bit of time. And it is making, we were saying before we started that you both are feeling really touched by the impact that your book is making on readers. And I have already begun recommending it to my couples. I cannot wait to integrate it and include it in resource packets for students. Your book is called Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships. And it is just wonderful. The two of you, I'm so glad that you did everything that you had to do, the hundreds and thousands of hours that you had to spend creating this book. I'm so glad that you did because it is a really important resource. So first of all, congratulations to you both. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. And you start by sharing that desire, the difficulties with desire are in fact the number one reason that people seek sex therapy. And I, so I want you to start by defining desire because desire is not a drive. The two of you make clear it's not a drive, it's an incentive motivation system. Okay, so what do you mean? What the heck is desire? So desire has, you know, we've been trying to find one concrete definition, and it seems as though it's actually hard for a lot of people to pinpoint specifically what does desire mean for them. Desire for a lot of people is a wanting And it's a connection-seeking, it's a pleasure-seeking. Desire is a way of, like I said, connecting for some people. And desire seems to be sort of where you are and something that you're looking to move toward. And so that's one way of describing desire. And usually, you know, with the incentive motivation system, what we're saying is rather than just feeling an internal sort of mechanism that just turns on, which some people describe feeling, there's also a whole host of people who don't experience that way, but rather experience it as something that they can move towards because they get something positive out of the experience, whether it's something feels good or a sense of bonding or connection. That's in fact one of the very first exercises in the book is asking people to check in with what are they seeking and when they're being sexual, right? What are your motivations for being sexual? And that right there is such an important self-reflection because I think that we kind of come up with this easy answer like, well, it's sex. We should want sex. But actually people have lots and lots of different reasons for being sexual. Yeah. There's a very infamous sexual health study from Cindy Meston and her colleagues then at UT Austin, who they asked a bunch of people, you know, what motivates you to be sexual with a partner? What motivates you to be sexual with yourself? Right. And they found over 400 different reasons, right? A lot of those we might suspect, right? Sex can be very pleasurable. Many people are motivated to have sex and orgasmic um, experiences because it feels good, of course, right? For other people, it's a spiritual or a faith-based experience. For others, it helps them fall asleep or it relieves cramps or headaches, right? It can be a pain relief experience. There are so, so, so many motivators or reasons to potentially be sexual And we often don't give ourselves, and certainly culturally are not encouraged to think about what those might be for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, I think you've done something really important, which is that the title of the book is about a libido difference. And so right there in the title, you are framing this as a relationship problem. And what's so important about that is so often the partner who struggle, who has lower libido, lower desire, oftentimes feels like the problem or is made to feel like the problem. So why do we need to see libido difference as a relationship problem? 
from a therapeutic perspective, from a sex therapy perspective, this is the number one complaint that we see couples and folks in relationships coming in with, where there is a discrepancy between the two that is not being navigated well or being navigated in a way that's causing potentially hostility, resentment, those sorts of things. So from a clinical and therapeutic context, it absolutely is a relational concern, right? I would add to that, right, that there is no one normative type of libido or style of libido or level of libido. There's no research that exists out there that says this is the normal level of how many times a week you should think about wanting to have sex, right? Those data don't exist. And until they do, you know, where we can kind of pinpoint, okay, maybe there's a normal curve here of levels of libido among humans, and there probably is, right? But until that time comes, We know that any level of libido is potentially healthy and normative, right? There's no right way, quote unquote, to experience libido. We've also seen that there's a trend in the folks who are coming in for sex therapy that most of the people we've seen with libido concern, low libido uh, in particular, are partnered. And the concern emerges within the partnership and the distress that exists within the partnership. And, you know, I think Jen and I have both been sort of hard pressed for the decade plus that we've done this work to think of times they've maybe been very sparing where someone's come in who's not partnered and has this distress and concern because, you know, for folks who have lower libido or less libido or, you know, desire is just not their, you know, priority. Sex is maybe not as much a priority. They're, you know, they're just sort of living their lives and, you know, accommodating that. And it's not necessarily causing the distress that it does for folks who are partnered, who are seeing reflected back to them a level of distress from a partner who's saying, hey, I'm wanting more and this is causing me, you know, difficulties or struggle. Yeah. So one of the differences, and Jen, you were speaking to this, is that most likely there's a desire or a libido spectrum, that there's probably a normative bell-shaped curve. So that just sort of our motivation for, our desire for, like just sort of the quantity or or the amount of our energy that is devoted to thinking about sex, kind of orienting our life towards sex, probably there's some individual differences there. Almost certainly. Like I said, the research is not really there to quantify that at this point in time. I don't know that we'll ever have that research, quite honestly. But from an anecdotal kind of therapeutic clinical experience perspective, we certainly see that where there's a wide spectrum of level of interest in sex. And by saying that there's a wide range that is likely normal and healthy, what does that, just that piece of information offer to a couple? Like where could a couple go with just that piece of information that there is a libido spectrum? This is often so normalizing and helpful for people to hear because like you said, in our culture, we tend to you know, have a narrative that makes the lower libido partner the problem. And then the higher libido partner is the one that we're using as a barometer to try to like live up to or come up toward. And so when we talk about this as, you know, there's this spectrum, what the, you know, quote unquote, lower libido, and we put that in quotes a lot because it's it's really relative to the dynamic, what the lower libido partner ends up feeling is like, oh, sort of this like feeling of relief. Um, just kind of hearing that, hey, this is not about something that's wrong with you. And that can be so helpful just to hear that, that, that our goal is not to make everything match up. And our goal is not to make you experience desire in the exact same ways that your partner maybe experiences it. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. 
I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. So Lauren, there's not just the spectrum, but also the fact that there are a couple of different pathways into desire. So right off the bat in the book, you are educating us about the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Can you please talk us through how these are two normal, healthy, adaptive, lovely ways to experience desire? So not just the the quantity of how much of your time and energy you want to devote towards sexual experiences, but also how you kind of enter into sexual experiences. So what is the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire, please? So we talk about these in the book as styles or types of libido or styles or types of sexual desire. They kind of sound like what they are. So hopefully that helps people remember, right? So spontaneous desire is that often very kind of lightning bolt feeling of horniness or feeling very interested in sex, um, whether that's by yourself or with a partner, kind of doesn't matter. It's often really accompanied in close proximity or in close in time with bodily arousal, so physical arousal, uh, genital tingling, lubrication, erections, um, sort of bodily tingles that signal some sexual arousal on a physiological level oftentimes paired together with that mental interest, that desire. And so for folks with spontaneous desire, it often does become this very strong bodily experience because of the arousal that's happening usually at the same time or very close together with the mental interest. That can be a super powerful feeling. Um, I meet with a lot of folks who have had changes in their spontaneous libido as they get older. There are some hormonal connections to this. Um, Certainly, we know that there are some brain chemistry connections. Some of the neurotransmitters in our brain are implicated in spontaneous libido. For many people, spontaneous libido tends to go down a bit as we get older. This is a pretty normative part of sex and aging for many, many, many people. It often is a grief process as well because spontaneous desire feels very physically, bodily, and emotionally, of course, powerful. But when it's not happening as much or it's happening less and creating some distress in your relationship, um, there's often a grief process that goes with that change. But I like to remind folks that it is a very normative and in many ways predictable change in our sex with aging. Yes. How about, Jen, also shifts from more spontaneous to more responsive as a relationship becomes really steady, really solidified, as couples begin living together, having children together? Do you see that as well, that shift? Not, I mean, I guess, I guess aging, aging and time go together. But yeah, say a little bit about as a relationship settles, how that change can happen. Yeah, definitely. So we know that one of the neurotransmitters that's connected in some complicated way to spontaneous libido is dopamine. Infamously, early on in relationships, we have, you know, it's been called many things over the years, limerence, new relationship energy, the honeymoon period, right? That time period where we have just this explosion flood of dopamine in our brains. We look at our partner, they can do no wrong. We see them through these kind of rose colored lens. And then as we get to know them a little bit, we see, okay, like, yes, they have some irritating quirks, maybe don't love those things, still love them, we can live with that, right? And so we start to take them down off that pedestal over time. That is a normal and mostly healthy part of a relationship, right? As we start to kind of see them in a more realistic light. That dopamine that's paired with that new relationship energy is also usually backing some of that high spontaneous desire and high frequency of sexual activity early on in a relationship. And so as that calms down, as we get to know each other, we have a more realistic bond and understanding of the other person in our life, we tend to see that spontaneous desire calm down a little bit. Yep. When you're writing about responsive desire, you write these kind of four foundational requirements to help somebody with responsive desire. You write about consent, pleasure, focus, and time. So these are kind of these like pillars that can nurture and support somebody who's experiencing responsive desire. So tell us about consent, pleasure, focus, and time. Why are those so important? These were um, some pillars that this is actually uh, Jen's work and sort of noticing the themes that were so important in cultivating responsive desire and that when one or more of these variables is blocked, it can really interrupt this idea of responsive desire. And, you know, that responsive desire is often something that emerges 
in response to, hence the label, in response to pleasure or in response to something that is incentivizing or motivating. And um, often that comes after physiological arousal. So even if there are things that are pleasurable that are happening, if you don't have the time to engage in something that feels you know, pleasurable or to devote, you know, enough time to cultivate arousal and pleasure, that's going to maybe, you know, cause challenge. And I know in our really busy lives, this is one of the key blocks for a lot of folks is, you know, as they've gotten older, maybe taken on more responsibilities, potentially had, you know, children, things like this. There's just more and more that gets in the way of time together and time to devote to cultivating arousal, cultivating connection. So I'd say time is the one that I see probably the most in terms of a block to responsive desire. Do you feel like, Lauren, that that's, as you're saying that, it's another reminder that rather than just sticking a low libido label on somebody's forehead, right, there's something more nuanced going on. It may not be that I have low libido. It may be that my libido, like the brakes are really hit quite hard when I know we only have, you know, 20 minutes or I, when I know there's going to be, you know, kids playing kind of right down the hall from us. So that's different. That's, that is a, a more interesting, more subtle story than just, I have low libido. I have libido that is deeply contextualized by the kids down the hall, the amount of time we have. Why is that so important for, for people to hold on to? You know, I think that really helps to, like you said, add the nuance that's often missing from this conversation. And again, give permission and sort of validate that this makes good sense why you're experiencing things the way that you are. And rather than looking at this as a pathology and saying, okay, you need to take medication, you have this hypoactive desire disorder, we're really looking at the the whole picture and kind of coming at this at a more holistic lens. And saying, boy, does it make good sense that, you know, for you to experience pleasure and arousal, you really need a certain context to work with. And the current sort of parameters of your life makes that really challenging. And I think we're doing two things. One is sort of saying, hey, that makes good sense. And there's all of these things that are hitting the brakes that we need to pay attention to. Then there's also the reality that, you know, we might be in this season of life for a while, right? Where you have like kids in the next room or you work a demanding job or you and your partner get some limited quality time together. And so we're doing both things saying, hey, this makes a lot of sense. And then if this is something that is important to you that you'd like to work on, that there might be some ways that we sort of maneuver within this chaotic time frame or chaotic season of life. That's right, because you also do address the ways in which we can get a bit perfectionistic about sex. We can only have sex if my body image is here, the timing is here, the context is here, the kids are here. We sometimes can create for ourselves a kind of mountain of contextual needs that really none of us can live up to. So you're doing both things of honoring, yes, this is difficult, and what is the sort of good enough context? How do we walk What are your guidelines or your suggestions for how somebody may walk that line? It also opens the conversation to things that might be immovable at this point and what things we could flex around a little bit, right? So we don't have this very perhaps unattainable list of all the things that must be in place in order for sexual activity to happen, right? Some things they won't be able to change for a while. That's true, right? But by recognizing what some of the barriers are to that context, we can start to kind of take stock of, okay, what can we flex? What is movable here for now, right? Where can we kind of shift some things? I did want to go back, if I can, to those four tenets of responsive desire. Lauren and I work in very different clinical settings. And so one of the barriers that I often see, actually more so often in terms of barriers to responsive desire is the lack of pleasure with sexual activity. And specifically, I work with a lot of patients. I'm in a medical setting doing sexual health care. So I see a lot of patients that have pain with sex. And that is something that is very common, unfortunately, and something that is very underdiagnosed and undertreated. 
And so a lot of people are out there having quite uncomfortable to excruciatingly painful sex, sometimes over and over and over again for many, many years. If that's what the sexual experience has become, just an opportunity for you to feel pain and to feel hurt physically, perhaps even emotionally as well, responsive desire is going to be very difficult to cultivate in that environment. And so I always like to mention that many people out there, especially people with vulvas and vaginas, are at higher risk for pain with sexual activity. And many don't know that there's treatment available. There is, right? And so this is something that I see a lot of people suffering with. And it absolutely is a major hurdle to libido. It is a major hurdle. And as you said, it's under-identified and under-diagnosed. And so um, where do you want somebody who is, especially somebody with a vagina and a vulva, is experiencing sexual pain, where do you want them to go? Especially if they're if they've raised it with their gynecologist or OBGYN and haven't gotten sort of the answers that they need, how do you, where do you want someone to go from there? Yeah, you point out a really important facet here that many medical providers are not adequately trained in sexual health, much less sexual pain conditions. And so you might, you know, become very brave and go to your primary care provider and say, this has been an issue for me. I'm having pain with sex, please help. And they might not have much to offer you, unfortunately. And that's a bigger cultural issue with our medical training system. If that has been the case, right, I would recommend looking for a pelvic floor physical therapist in your local area. If you can find a sexual medicine specialist, awesome. I recognize that doesn't exist in all places, of course, but oftentimes a pelvic floor physical therapist is a good place to start because they can at least do initial assessment if you can't find a sexual medicine physician. What you're sharing here is vital, that the way out is by really starting to kind of honor the pain and know that there are possibilities for help. This is where the staircase model comes in, right? Is that we have normalized, especially in a heterosexual context, that penetrative sex is the end-all be-all and that that kind of sets people up to be in these cycles of enduring pain in order to be a good partner, et cetera, et cetera, and that we need to have much more expansive menus of sexual experiences and to honor pain as a signal. Well said. Anytime I'm working with a client or patient who has both low libido and pain or discomfort with sex, first of all, of course, there's low libido, right? It's a rare day when I see somebody who has strong libido and has had pain with sex. So those two things, as you might imagine, go together. But what we're often talking about is the pain needs to be treated first, because without that happening, it's hard to see what we can do with libido, right? If there's always a threat of pain or discomfort every time you're sexual with your partner, libido is not going to go anywhere very fast, right? And so that always kind of rises to the top of the priority. This is a survival instinct, right? So not only does it make good sense to not want to be sexual when it hurts, this is a survival instinct and one that we need to be listening to. Okay. So when we're talking about responsive desire, we're also talking about the willingness model and you do a beautiful job of defining the willingness model. Lauren, could you speak a little bit about the willingness model and how a couple may begin to use that language when they're talking about their sexual connection? Yeah, this comes from um, Joanne Lulin's work. She talks about this, you know, many years ago in some of her work around sexuality. And I think she did a lot of work specifically with lesbian sexuality. She talks about this willingness model that I was trained in and I think is so important for people to understand. And and we come right off the bat here with saying that this is not about convincing or trying to use willingness as sort of a catch-all for like always being willing. And so we want to be really careful about how we frame that. Willingness basically says, where are you today in this moment in terms of your openness to cultivating responsive desire. And we talk about there's there's a metaphor that's often used in sexual health, sort of the microwave and the oven. You know, the microwave is more that spontaneous desire that might be sort of quick to turn on and and quick to get going. The oven might be something that um, takes a bit of time to cultivate or to warm up and so requires maybe a bit of a preheat or a preamble before just jumping right in. And so the question that people often ask is, is the oven on? And for folks with responsive desire, the answer is often no. You know, do you, are you in the mood? Do you feel like doing this right now? Are you already roused? No, 
No. And so if we use that as our, you know, question, we're really missing opportunity for a very different experience because there's a different question that I want people to ask, which is, are you willing to go turn on the oven? Like, are you willing to do some preheat? Are you willing to? And you get to be everything from very willing to not very willing to not at all. And so, you know, for for this, we kind of look at it like a scale from, you know, zero to 10. Where are you on the scale? Because if you're a five, maybe that means you're open to getting into bed, doing some touch and seeing where things go from there. Maybe someone else's five is, hey, I'm not really open to something sexual, but maybe, you know, let's touch base in an hour or two and see where I'm at. So everybody's scale is going to look really different. So the willingness scale is really just asking a very different question and and having some language for partners to be able to communicate sort of where they're at in a given space and time. Some people use like a traffic light, like red, yellow, green. Some people use the numbered scale, but it's really just trying to get sort of a baseline for where someone is. Because if you're really low, maybe, you know, a two, a one, a zero, that may just be something that we're going to honor that day and either not engage sexually at all or try to find another way to um, explore what's motivating the bid for connection. So if it's coming from a place of like, I'd like to have some pleasure with you, I'd like to connect with you, there might be other ways for us to do that. And there might be differences based on when I'm an eight, when I'm a five, when I'm a two. If I'm a five, so my partner approaches me and I'm a five, which means that I am mid-range, I could be, you know, sort of, do some internal work, do some relational work to move towards a more of a 10 of willingness. Then a couple of different paths are open, right? They're sort of, what am I going to do to kind of turn myself on, open myself more? And how might my partner assist, right? So then we've got a couple of different avenues open to us. It's a couple's opportunity then to figure out how might the more spontaneous partner be able to create a context and how might I, as a responsive desire partner, create more context, right? There's there's a couple of different pathways where that might help me move from a five towards a 10. Is that right? That's right. And five for you might mean I'm open to it. Let's go, you know, kind of kick some things into gear. And five for someone else might mean something very different. And so what's really important is for partners, if they're going to use a scale or use this type of model to come up with their own understanding of these numbers or this language or what things mean because my five might be really different from your five and what I do next when I'm at a five might look really different. And so this is where communication is going to be so important. And that it's not a guarantee. Right. Because we might we might get in bed and we might get naked and that might feel really wonderful and it still might not move the needle very much, but can that be enough? I love that you include that the willingness may be for the more spontaneous desire partner to be willing to have an expanded definition. And so that then that laying in bed together naked and touching and enjoying each other, that didn't move me from a five to a 10 towards a more like robust or complete sexual experience, but it moved me towards being naked with you. And we had that experience together. So that willingness is, can the spontaneous desire partner also be willing to have a more expanded sense of what counts as an experience? of pleasure and connection together. And I think that's so key because so often we're looking at willingness and just looking at the lower libido partner to express willingness to engage sexually. But, you know, it's so important to equally involve the, you know, more spontaneous desire partner or higher libido partner in saying, what are you really looking for in this experience? And are there some expansive or varied ways for you to get some of those underlying needs met. And so I love that you just included that because I think that's so key that this model is not just for one partner, but it's for all partners involved. Willingness is never yes or no, right? It's never that simple of an approach. It is a spectrum. I encourage patients that I work with to also think about this not only as a communication tool with their partner, but also as a self-reflective tool. So at any given point, you can check in with yourself and think about, okay, zero to 10 on the willingness scale where am I at right now, right? Where am I at today? And this kind of gets us into identifying personal breaks or accelerators to responsive desire in particular, right? So if I'm at a two right now, I'm kind of self-reflecting on my own willingness. My partner's not even around. 
what do I need to do to move up the scale, right? What do I need to do to move closer to a nine or 10? Are there a sort of a list of things I need to get done? Do I need to meditate? Do I need to go for a run? You know, what are the things that I need to personally move that mark if I'm wanting to do that, right? So there is some self-awareness and self-reflection that becomes a part of this for each individual as well. So we know that when there is a desire difference, there's often a negative cycle that gets going. What does the higher desire partner oftentimes most commonly misunderstand about their lower desire partner? And then I'm going to ask it the other way. But what do higher desire partners tend to most commonly misunderstand about their lower desire partners? I'm actually curious about both Lauren and I's answer on this. I think my answer would be that it feels personal because obviously they're personally involved as a partner in the relationship, but that it's often not about them, if that makes sense. So it's often, you know, if a lower libido partner is declining a sexual advance, it's very infrequently about the higher libido partner. I would say something very similar, that it's often taken personally and stories that can emerge are often sort of fear-based stories like, "Uh uh-oh, my partner doesn't find me attractive. My partner doesn't want to spend time with me. My partner has these you know, negative feelings towards me. And this is coming out in their rejection of my you know, sexual initiation. And I think that that's probably the number one, which is why we're both saying it's probably the number one interpretation that can happen over time when there's this pattern between partners. And similar to Jen, I find that that's more of a rare sort of reason why people are saying no to sex. Sometimes it is. There might be like a hygiene issue or there might be a lack of, you know, um, emotional connection. There can be all kinds of relational factors or personal factors that are part of that. But more often than not, it's about all of these other things that are hitting the brakes. And when we get, you know, sort of hurt, we can get shut down and pull away. And what often I encourage is to get curious, you know, rather than sort of jumping right to that, like my partner doesn't find me desirable. I need to sort of go off and, you know, lick my wounds. It's more like, hey, what are you needing to be experiencing responsive desire? What are you needing to get into the mood to go turn on the oven, so to speak? What can I do to increase pleasure or to, you know, create more motivation for sex to be more interesting for you. It's one of those kind of automatic negative thoughts that ends up getting in our, and and it feels like capital T truth. My partner doesn't want to have sex with me and therefore it's about me. Something's wrong with me, something's wrong with them, something's wrong with us. And that's one of those automatic thoughts that then ends up taking a life of its own. And so by both of you highlighting to the higher desire partner, like notice if that's where your mind goes, it's a personal rejection of me. When that thought is in the driver's seat, yeah, you're licking your own wound, you're pulling away, you're shutting down, you're feeling like a victim, you're losing curiosity. And you're losing the ability to be collaborative and say, how can I, how can I be an ally and a resource to you and to us? So that's huge. You're really wanting that higher desire partner to notice the story they start telling themselves about what must be going on inside of my lower desire partner's mind and heart and body. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also Um, an opportunity for vulnerability here, that when you are feeling, if a pattern for you is feeling rejected around sexual advances or sexual connection, you know, we, we tend to move in sort of predictable ways. One is that pulling away, shutting down, not making those, you know, attempts anymore. There's another common pattern, which is to essentially protest the disconnection. And the protest is, you know, things like we're never having sex and you don't love me anymore and what's wrong with you and you need to go get looked at and, you know, these kind of messages that really, again, sort of problematize the lower libido partner as the the problem. And the opportunity that's often missed is the vulnerability in saying, hey, I've been feeling this way, you know, I'm feeling kind of lost. I don't know how to reach you you know, sexually and intimately. I don't know what to do to connect with you. I feel like there's this, you know, miss between us. And I want to talk to you about that. And I want to talk together 
about what we can do to address this part of our relationship because I miss you. Yeah, the intent with the protest might be like, let's find our way back to each other. But the impact on the lower desire partner is going to be that they feel defensive, they feel frozen, they feel shut down, they feel blamed, they feel stuck, they get lost in their own shame. So even if the intent of the protest is like, let's fight for us, it's not going to have that impact. There's nothing that protest does that vulnerability can't do better. It's such a more inviting way of of I miss us. And I think oftentimes the higher desire partner really is like really can kind of carry the carry the flag for both partners around like this is important. This matters. And there's such an opportunity there for the higher desire partner to really be an advocate for both around the importance of erotic connection. It just needs to be wielded in a way that invites the other person forward. Okay, so what does the lower desire partner tend to get wrong about their higher desire partner? What are the stories the lower desire partner may start to tell themselves about their higher desire partner that are incorrect, unkind, you know, not quite compassionate? Talk to us about that, please. I would say two that are interconnected come immediately to my mind in that the lower libido partner is sort of telling themselves the story of my partner only wants to be sexual in this one way. And then the corollary to that is if I start touching them or have any sort of physical connection, even just general affection, it's going to start to lead to that one way that my partner wants and there's no other option and no room for negotiation. And so that is a very common narrative on that side of the equation. Similar or sort of building on that can sometimes I'll I'll hear folks say, you know, I think my partner only wants me for sex or only values me when we're sexual or only sees me when we're having X amount of sex in in a particular way. And so I think narratives can emerge that are like, my partner is using me or, you know, not respecting me as a whole human and partner because when, and this kind of gets into how this is a pattern or a cycle, when my partner pulls away or gets really, you know, mad and starts protesting and escalating when we're not having, you know, sex at whatever frequency, then that starts to leave me with this message that like, that's all they want. There's something wrong with me. This is all I have to offer them because what gets missed is some of the deeper sort of longings, you know, that sex is not just at the surface, you know, what we do with each other's bodies, but there's usually some deeper meaning to it. And when we get stuck at the surface of, you know, it's not this many times a week or it didn't involve penetration, we really lose the deeper part of it and the deeper longing often for, you know, the higher desire partner, which is that connection, the validation, the sense of, you know, coming together and bonding. And so we get hung up on this idea that really it's, they're just, you know, so fixated on sex and that's all they want. And really it's connection seeking usually. Oh my gosh, that's such a huge one. That's such a huge one. Jen, go back for a moment to what you were saying about one of the things that a lower desire partner may, one of the things that happens is a lower desire partner may stop reaching for and touching their higher desire partner for fear that any touch is going to be taken as a signal that I want a full sexual experience. So what do you want couples to do when that kind of dynamic starts to set in, where any kind of touch has eroded because it has become like conflated with any touch equals initiation or fear of initiation. What do you want couples to begin to do to correct that? Well, first I want to validate that that fear is often true because it reflects the staircase model that we talk about in the book Desire, where there is this very you know interconnected pathway of, okay, Touching in this way leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to usually heteronormative, cisnormative, penetrative intercourse, right? And so that fear, that anxiety about, well, any sort of touch will be just a signal that it's a go. It's a green light for sex, right? That's a very valid fear because it's based on how we socioculturally treat partnered sex, right? So I want to acknowledge that first and foremost. That leads to my answer though, right? That part of this work is getting out of staircase thinking and getting out of staircase behaviors, right? Um, Recognizing and having some good conversations with your partner that I want to just be able to give you a hug and a kiss when I come home and that not be interpreted as, hey, let's head to the bedroom right now. It's on, right? Or I really want to be able to lay next to you naked in bed and just to kind of have that moment for now. I'll let you know if something changes, right? 
that one sort of touch, one sort of even sexual behavior, right? I might want manual stimulation or oral stimulation, but I don't really want penetration. And so I don't want that to be a sign that one is going to lead to the other, right? This requires some skills in sexual communication and recognizing that one experience should and often will need to be looking different from other experiences, that it's not going to be the staircase way of having sex every single time. It's such a trust-building exercise also because when the lower desire partner does reach out and touch their higher desire partner and the higher desire partner kind of can hold the charge, right, can hold, can be in that hug, can be in that five-minute makeout in the kitchen and just kind of hold the charge and not sulk, not protest, not try to figure out kind of how do I build on this and have more happen. For the lower desire partner, that is just such a trust-building moment, right? And and the lower desire partner gets to feel themselves feeling sexy, a little bit turned on. Like it, it really does. Like those little moments have the power to start to change these patterns, don't they? Yeah, those huge micro moments, right? Which is a little bit of an oxymoron, but they're huge micro yeah, moments. They are huge. Because of that reconnection, that trusting reconnection where there's not pressure to do something else. And there is clear communication of what the boundary is and that that is honored. Yeah, because these sexual desire differences for couples don't change overnight. They change in those little practices of each person stepping out of the role they've been playing, each person challenging their own thinking, trying a little bit of different behaviors, right? These are changes that have to happen slowly and with time, even as much as partners are eager for it to be quite different all at once. Yeah, we recognize that this is often not as fast as people want it to be, but the work is in those small micro moments and in that process. I think one of my favorite things that you did with this book is that you devoted an entire chapter at the end for the higher desire partner. And I think it's, you really want the higher desire partner to become aware of the sneaky, subtle ways they may be hurting their own cause a little bit, you know, and, and doing things that where there's not an intent to create more pressure. There's not an intent to amplify shame in a lower desire partner, but that's what's happening. Can you just, if you could whisper in that higher desire partner's ears, what are a couple of things that you want that higher desire partner to keep in mind as the couple is trying to change some of these longstanding patterns? You know, I always like to uh, start with validating that it makes good sense that when you have desire to be close with your partner in this way, that you want to reach out for that, that you want to make that connection, that the desire that you have and, you know, the libido that you have is just fine as it is. There's, a, you know, similar to not pathologizing the lower libido partner. I want to be cautious that we're also not pathologizing the higher libido partner, that you can have um, you know, a high sense of sexuality. This can be something that's really important to you. This can be a primary way of you feeling bonded and connected. And that's all well and good and lovely. But the way that we take that and then engage with our partners and try to translate that desire, that's where we can get stuck. And like you said, sort of acting in ways that may be going against our overall sort of mission or desire, right? I want more connection with you. I want more touch with you. But when I turn every, you know, opportunity for touch maybe into something sexual, that's creating sort of this all or none, you know, element to touch. And that's undermining the sense that we can have more touch. And so I just like to, you know, let folks know, you know, how are we going to get closer to where you want to be is expanding you know, how you think about sexuality and touch so that we're including a wider range of ways to connect. And I'm also, you know, encouraging them to go back to motivators, right? What are you seeking? I want to empower folks to have the ability to explore their sexuality, not just with their partner present, but to have a sense of sexuality for themselves so that we're not placing all sexual desire and you know needs for relational connection onto a partner but saying hey you know if i'm feeling a bit sexy and my partner is you know very low on the willingness that i have an option and that's something that couples need to talk about what those options are that also honor their relationship but what i see so often is you know due to whether it's faith-based messages 
or, um, you know, just sort of the implicit messages that folks have received about sexuality. We have this, you know, in, in a mononormative world that like all sexual energy needs to be placed on partner and experienced with partner and can only exist in that, you know, dyad. And so there's some opportunity here for exploring sexuality. You know, if you need to have an orgasm, maybe there's a way for you to do that. And you can do that for yourself on your own so that maybe that's not sort of seeping over into this sort of urgency to have that happen with a partner. That's going to maybe make more space for non-sexual touch without this sense of urgent need, so to speak, for, you know, a release or a climax. That your partner is solely in charge of your sexuality and the only way that you can express your sexual self. Yeah. May we take just a moment here at the end and respond to this really wonderful listener question, and then I will let you both go. Okay, so this is somebody who uses she, her pronouns, and she's written in to us from Canada. And she says, thanks for the podcast. I'm a huge fan. My mentality has changed towards relationships since I started listening to you and reading from you. I'm a divorced mom of two kids, and I met this man recently that feels so right with. He's a great man. He's caring and attentive and is ready to build a life together with me. However, I don't find him attractive. I like talking to him and spending time with him, but I don't have feelings for him. I have spent some time interacting with him and hoping the feelings will grow, but it hasn't. I'm a bit concerned the lack of physical attraction might affect our physical intimacy if I decide to go into a committed relationship with him. I feel he's a right fit for me, but I just don't think I'll be able to like him in a romantic way. I'm really confused about the next steps to take. Should I let him go or get into a romantic relationship with him? What a tough situation. Tough one. You know, from my clinical experience, I think that there's sort of a middle ground that comes to mind. Like on the one hand, you know, trying to suss out attraction on, let's say, a first interaction or a first communication. Sometimes that's hard for people to experience and to assess. So I like to encourage folks, you know, if it's the first date and you don't experience attraction, but there's a lot to build on, there's a lot of connection, you know, maybe we get to know somebody a bit. On the other hand, I've also seen that folks who have consistently found a lack of attraction continue to experience that challenge throughout the relationship. If you've gone through sort of getting to know someone, you've given them a chance, and it's still not there, that's usually something that continues years into the relationship. And so, while I can't tell this person to to stay or to leave, I can say that what I've seen is that continues, you know, long-term if you've given this person a fair chance to get to know them. So that brings you to the question, is there another way for me to, or another motivator that can, you know, facilitate romantic or sexual connection outside of attraction? Or is the attraction a showstopper for romantic and sexual connection for me. Because there's lots of motivators for being romantic and sexual with someone, are there other things that maybe draw me in, you know, and that I can work with variables that motivate me outside of attraction? If not, that might be something that you continue to experience. And is that something that you can work with or around? That was very much where my mind went as well is, so she's not experiencing sort of like a a high level, like what I'm imagining is she's sort of saying, I'm not like sort of innately, organically drawn to him. But it also sounds like from my read of this, that they don't really have a lot of lived experience of kissing and touching and being in kind of an erotic space together. So I have wondered, I was wondering, Lauren, similar And I think there's this like sort of chicken and egg, right? Where she's really quite hesitant to begin to open that world of erotic touch with him without a sense of commitment, but it's also hard for her to get committed without having a sense of, is she going to enjoy this with him? So I I really hear the way that that tension is living together. But that's what I was imagining is that the only or the most likely avenue towards her feeling a bit more spark with him is her having that felt sense of like, oh my gosh, my body really does feel so good with his body, right? Maybe I'm, maybe visually he doesn't live in the body that I've traditionally been drawn to, but my goodness, when we touch, when we're playing together in that way, now I feel it. 
But I hear that she's hesitant to kind of dip too far into that water until and unless she knows it's going to be possible. But it feels like there's a way that she's asking something of herself that's quite difficult to have without trying it a little bit. Jen, what do you, where do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I would, I think both of what you said, I agree fully with. I would add, you know, I think to what you're saying, Alexander, kind of this language of responsive desire, right? It doesn't sound like this listener has had much physical experience with this person to see if responsive desire could arise with some erotic touching, with some physical encounters that kind of hit those, it feels pleasurable, I can focus on this, right? We have plenty of time to explore. I'm hearing pretty clearly, again, like not a lot of that spontaneous libido kind of physical attraction. Some people really surprise themselves that once they get going in a physical way, that that responsive desire can come up pretty quickly. I don't know if that would be true for this listener or not. And if, because this is a heterosexual story, I wonder if, this was me putting together a lot of dots that she has not put out here. I was wondering if maybe she doesn't want to be experiencing penetrative sex with a partner until there's commitment. But might she experience other kinds of sexual experiences? You know, putting penetrative sex perhaps off to one side because that either is a belief or a value or a behavior she doesn't, you know, want to engage in outside of a commitment. What kind of touch and play might she be able to open the door to with him to see if that makes a difference? Certainly at her comfort level, you know, touching, cuddling, lying naked together, just really exploring bodies without any pressure around penetration or orgasms, really to kind of be in the moment and see what comes up for her. I think that that would be a really important kind of data point, perhaps, in answering her question about this. Could we get some of that responsive desire going, even if there is not that immediate physical, visual attraction, perhaps, to this person? Yeah. And then, Lauren, you know, to your earlier point is that she may not ever, you know, deem him to be a 10 out of 10 on some sort of abstract physical attractiveness scale, but with a thicker narrative around who they are to each other and what he brings to her world. We don't know how old she is, but I think there can be, you know, in sort of dating post-divorce, dating as a single mom, there can be some grief around, I don't fall in love the way that I used to, or partnerships begin a bit differently or look a bit differently than they used to. And so there may be some sort of private grieving that she may have to do around what she's looking for, wanting and needing in a partner that maybe is different than when she was in her 20s, that may be a journey that she needs to go on within herself that may, if she grieves that, that may open her to being able to appreciate what he is bringing to the table. What do you think, Lauren? Am I making too many excuses here? No, I I agree with what you're saying. I'm also thinking about the other possibility, which is that this attraction and this sort of romantic or sexual component just isn't there. And maybe we don't know specifically why. Maybe this comes down to just, you know, sexual uh, preference and and attraction and, and just how sometimes elusive that can feel in terms of what we like and what we don't like. And also to sort of give permission that you can have this like wonderful person in front of you who's lovely in all of these ways. And you get to decide what you do with that. So you could be in a relationship long-term with someone that doesn't have a romantic or sexual component. Those things are told to us as like a given and a must in our long-term partnerships. They don't have to be. You get to decide whether being romantic and sexual is going to be part of that journey for you. You also get to decide whether that's something that can be sort of set aside and really just focus on all the wonderful things that this person brings. And it's also okay. I just want to give this person permission that if at the end of the day, this just doesn't add up, even though this man is lovely and wonderful to them, that that's also okay to say, hey, this is just not fitting for me. I can't pinpoint the exact thing that's missing, but just something's not here. And I want us to be able to move forward and you know, perhaps meet someone who does kind of fit that piece that we're looking for. So I also want to give permission for that, for both of them. Yeah, for both of them. That's right. For both of them to have that. Yeah. 
Thank you both. Thank you, listener in Canada, for reaching out. I think that's a really thoughtful question. I can tell that these are the complexities and mysteries of partnership, right? That things can feel so wonderful in one way and there's something that doesn't isn't feeling quite right. And there's questions about what do I need to shift inside of me to make this happen? And then is there just the need to grieve that things can look wonderful and feel like they should be working and they just aren't? So thank you so much. Oh, Jennifer and Lauren, I this time went so fast. I cannot believe we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much to both of you for all of your wisdom and your gentle guidance. I think you've given a lot of just information and permission that's going to serve Reimagining Love listeners so well. And the most important thing for people to do is go and get your new book, Desire, which is available where books are sold. We will put the links to bookshop.org because we love to support the independent booksellers. But how else can people learn more about each of you and, and the work that you're doing? Folks can find me professionally on Instagram at Dr. Jennifer Wenzel. You can find me Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all at the same handle at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. You can also visit my website, which is drlaurenfogel.com. Thank you both. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you for, Thanks having, for having us. Thank you to the listener in Canada for sending us your thoughtful question. And thank you so much to Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy and Dr. Jennifer Vensel for joining me today. I hope that you will pick up a copy of their new book, Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships, which is available wherever books are sold and you can find the links in our show notes. Desire differences happen. They are common. They do not need to mean that your relationship is doomed, but desire differences are a call to action that need to be approached as a team. Dr. Lauren and Dr. Jennifer's book contains a ton of incredibly helpful information and practical strategies to help you deal with this difference with compassion and creativity. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.